Would you turn with me, please, to the second chapter of the uh, prophecy of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2. I remember once when I was um, probably in junior high, as I remember, I got very angry with my father. He had disciplined me for uh, some very good reason, I'm sure, and I, uh, there was a, a sort of a heated exchange, and I went off in a high huff and slammed the door and, and ran away from home and uh, spent a good part of that day wandering the, uh, the uh, chalk hills and cedar breaks of South Dallas County that surrounded our home. And about dinner time, I, I uh, wanted to go home. And, and one of my real problems was, how do you get back in the house? What, what steps do you take in order to uh, set things right? That's uh, the sort of thing that Jeremiah is concerned with in chapter 2. And it might be of great importance and relevance to some of you because some of you may have run away from home in the sense that uh, long ago or perhaps fairly recently you've you've rebelled against the Lord. And uh, you've gone through what what someone has described as one of those long winters of the soul when your heart has been very, very cold and your will has been frozen. And uh, on the one hand, you want to come back home, but, but on the other hand, you don't know what to do how to change your way of thinking, and, and how to, to, to get back into, uh, into the house. That's, uh, that's Jeremiah's concern in, in chapter 2. Uh, this is Jeremiah's first sermon. And as I said last, night, uh, last week, he was a very young man, probably in his late teens or early 20s, when he, uh, when he uh, made this, uh, this first effort at, at proclaiming uh, the, the word of the Lord in chapter 1, we're told that God called him and told him to go where he was told to go and say what he was told to say. And in chapter 2, he's told to go to Jerusalem. And uh, the words that we have on the page are the words, words which he was uh, to proclaim. I uh, well uh, remember my first uh, sermon, and I think it was probably memorable to uh, those who heard it as well. Uh, this is Jeremiah's first uh, effort, and I think, uh, I think you'll see that he did, uh, did very, very well. Let's begin reading with chapter 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. As we learned uh, from our study last week, Jeremiah was raised in the city of Anathoth, which was a little town about three miles, three and a half miles to the north of Jerusalem. And uh, when he was uh, just a, a young man, the word of the Lord came to him and called him, and now he's told where to go, to go to, Jer- to Jerusalem, and he's told what to say. The Lord speaks in verse 2, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me, and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest, all who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them. Uh, the little kingdom of, of Judah, the southern kingdom, was in rebellion, in a state of rebellion. And, and uh, what the Lord does is reminisce through Jeremiah, the prophet, about, their, uh, about the way things were. And uh, the kind of relationship that they had had on the journey between Egypt and, uh, and Canaan. And he says uh, that there are several things he remembers. One is the devotion of her youth. Jeremiah uses a term that's used all through the Old Testament, and, 
In fact, in, in a great deal of ancient Near Eastern literature for commitment, uh, a kind of loyalty that goes beyond mere legal observance of some covenant, but uh, a determination of heart to, to remain faithful and true to the object of, of your love. The Lord says, I, I remember when you had that sort of devotion to me, and as a bride you loved me and you followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. You were willing to venture yourself and follow me even though you knew that uh, there were tough times ahead. That was a time when Israel was holiness, literally holiness personified to the Lord. She was wholly his. The word holy means set apart and special. She didn't belong to anyone else. She was his and his alone. She was the first fruits of his harvest. The first fruit was the portion off the top of the harvest, the, the first gleanings of the, of the, of the uh, wheat field, for example, that were given to the Lord. That was his portion, his alone. It belonged to no one else. And uh, the Lord says, I, I remember when, when you were mine, you were special, you were devoted to me, you were my, my portion, and that was a time when all who tried to devour you were, were held guilty and disaster overtook them. It's as though a husband would uh, say to his wife, uh, if anyone lays a, a hand on you, uh, they've, they've, they're going to feel my wrath. You're mine. You belong to me. You're very special to me. And what he's trying to do is to, to remind Judah, rebellious Judah, who was acting like an unfaithful wife, of the way things used to be. The kind of love that they had had in the first bloom of, of love and marriage. That's a good technique. I, I, I sometimes do that when couples come into my office for marriage counseling, and they're often at uh, pretty severe odds. They're ready to uh, punch each other out, and, and uh, they glare at each other, and they sit on opposite sides of the room, and you, you, know, you, you feel like a referee for a while. You, you're afraid they're going to gonna start a fight. And very often I, I, I'll ask them, how, how did you get together? How did you meet one another? And, and what were your first years together like? And, and, and very often they'll begin to soften. Because, you know, no one ever, at least I don't know of anyone who gets married with a determination to make the other person miserable. Or uh, married, uh, get married because they hate one another. You know, it just doesn't happen that way. Not, not normally. Those were the days of, uh, of warmth and love and devotion. That's when you uh, opened the door for your wife and you wrote her poetry and you brought her flowers and you said all those sweet things that you used to say. And uh, just to go back in your mind and remember these things is, is healthy and, and good. And uh, that, that's what the Lord is saying through Jeremiah. Do you remember the, the first flush, the first bloom of, of love? And, and what things were like back then. Uh, I have a friend, uh, Lambert Dolphin, who many of you know, uh, who for years turned his back on the Lord and went his own way. He had been a very, very effective uh, uh, person, primarily working with students. And uh, for several years he rebelled and walked away from the Lord and, and went through some very difficult times. And uh, Lambert has since come back to the Lord, as, as most of you know. And, and uh, he told me that one of the things that brought him back was uh, a day when he was, he was sitting in his sauna in the uh, backyard of his house. And, 
And he began to remember the, the years when he followed the Lord and the sense of satisfaction and health and wholeness that he had then. And, and uh, he realized how much God had used him and uh, how he had touched the lives of so many people. And just thinking back, letting his mind run back over those, those years of, of use, usefulness and, and the love and devotion that he had with the Lord was what brought him up short and helped him to realize what he had given up. Now, if, if you've turned your back on the Lord, that's the place to begin. Think back on, on the years of, of love and devotion with the Lord. When you had that first love and that deep sense of commitment to Christ and what a, what a, 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 what a sense of satisfaction accompanied that first love. That's the place to begin. Now, the second thing that the Lord does is to spell out for Judah the consequences of their sin. Not only should you remember the past, you need to realize the consequences of the future if, if we continue in rebellion. Verse 4, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. The word actually means emptiness. They followed emptiness and they, and they became empty. It's the same word that's found in the book of Ecclesiastes that's translated vanity. The philosopher in the book of Ecclesiastes describes life as vain and empty. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And it's the same term that's used here. You, you, you turn from the living God and you followed emptiness and uh, that emptiness produced emptiness. You did not ask, where is the Lord? Or they did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Uh, literally, the line reads, they followed he who does not profit or that which does not profit. And what he's doing is reminding them that from, almost from the very beginning they were unfaithful. They, the, the one time in Israel's history when they were not idolatrous was the, was the period of their history between the the exodus and, and, the, and the conquest. And uh, from that point on, he says, the fathers began to forget. They forgot what God had, had done, and they began to follow the worthless things, the empty things, the Baals, and the gods of the nations that surrounded, surrounded uh, Canaan. And uh, not only that, the, the officials, the priests, and the leaders, and the Levites, and the kings, the shepherds, he's referring to the kings here, they, uh, they forgot to remember. They forgot what God had done. And they followed after things that do not profit. And he says, what happened in the past is still going on today, as, he, as you look around. And he says, God still brings charges against you. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Kittim and look. Kittim is the island of Cyprus. It was named for the... Uh, for a Phoenician colony there, and, and uh, the, the point of, of 
of this observation is look to the West. He says, and you won't see any other nation who's done anything like this. And send to Keter. The Keterites were Arab tribes off to the east. And observe closely and, and see if there has ever been anything like this. There's no analogy for this. Any, any time in history where he says a nation has changed its gods. But my people have exchanged their glory for that which does not profit, for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with, with great horror. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The, the first consequence of, uh, of rebellion against God, the first consequence of sin is always emptiness. Uh, man is, is incurably religious. If, if we don't have God in our life, then we have to substitute some other, some other object of worship. We, we can't do without something that gives some spiritual significance to, to our lives. We are basically spiritual beings. Uh, during the 40s and 50s, when we were so enamored with technology and we made... Uh, made things our God, uh, there was a great sense of restlessness, particularly among the student community and in the 60s. That's why there was such a, an upsurge of interest in Eastern religions. They had rejected Christianity because they, uh, they felt that what they were seeing in the, in the organizations around them, the organizational form of Christianity, was, wasn't valid. It didn't, it didn't meet their needs. But they couldn't live without religion. Well, the same thing is true today. We can't live without some object of worship. We have to have something, something spiritual, something at the center of our, of our lives to give them, give them meaning. But the problem is there, there is nothing apart from God that can give significance. Everything else is empty. And uh, when we worship something that's empty, the result is emptiness. You and I know that. Uh, today, people worship sex. They worship uh, they worship physical beauty. They worship their bodies. They worship their vocations. They worship money. They worship power. They worship automobiles. Uh, they uh, worship their toys, their so snow machines, and and uh, their guns, and all sorts of things that we try to uh, with which we try to fill up our lives but we know they don't satisfy. I've had a yin for years to, to own a, a bamboo fly rod, and, and you men that are fly fishermen know how expensive those things are. And finally, someone uh, this year gave me an old, uh, an old bamboo rod, an old cane rod, and I cut it down and made a, a nifty little six-foot, uh, four-line fly rod out of it, and I just love that little thing. And, and I, I worked on it for days and, and days and days, and finally built it, and I was so proud of that little rod. And hung it up on a nail on the wall, and you know it's been there for about two months now because, of course, there's not any, any fishing. And uh, I have just forgotten all about it. It doesn't satisfy. I'd always wanted one. Now I have one. And it doesn't satisfy. It just leaves me empty. And uh, that's true of all of the things with which we try to fill our lives that we think will satisfy us. I love the figure that... That Jeremiah uses, he says, you, you, have, you have rejected 
the fountain of living waters, and you've substituted for him cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. We leak. Nothing satisfies us. We try, to, we try to fill up our lives with things to make us feel whole. But only God can make us feel whole. And that's what Jeremiah wants us to know. It's what he wanted his nation to know. The first consequence of rebellion against God is that sense of emptiness and boredom and lifelessness that begins to set in. It's what the Apostle Paul calls death in the New Testament. Not physical death but uh, a sense of listlessness and boredom. Nothing seems significant. Nothing will satisfy. The second second consequence uh, follows in verses 14 through uh, 19. Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? He's referring, I believe, to the northern kingdom of Israel, which by this time had fallen to the Assyrian army. Uh... Jeremiah received his call sometime after the Assyrians had invaded the northern kingdom and brought that, that nation to its knees. And uh, Jeremiah reminds his own people that Israel had been a very proud and powerful nation at one time, and now they were slaves. The lions have roared, they have growled at him, they have laid waste his land, his towns have bur- are burned and deserted. The, the lion here represents Assyria, as there had in the the emperor of, of uh, the Assyrian Empire, who had devastated the, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. And now he turns to little Judah in the south, also the men of Memphis. Memphis was the capital of Egypt at that time, and Tophanes, another large, uh, powerful city in Egypt, have shaved the crown of your head. They had humiliated little Judah in some way. We don't know exactly what the Egyptians had done, but perhaps had exacted tribute from them and embarrassed them and shaved the top of their head, sent them, sent them home in, in shame. Jeremiah observes in verse 18, you, you, you did it to yourself. Have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you on the way? Now why go to Egypt and drink water from the Shehor? It's another word for uh, the Nile. And why go to Assyria and drink water from from the river, from the Euphrates. He's going back to his illustration of, have, of their having rejected the fountain of living waters and digging out cisterns for themselves that, that, uh, that didn't hold, didn't hold water. And uh, despite the embarrassment that they had received at the hands of, of the Assyrians and the Egyptians, they were inclined to go back and form allowance, uh, alliances with them to protect themselves. And uh, Jeremiah says that's folly. Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me. That's the second consequence of of rebellion. Life becomes hard and and bitter. Our circumstances become become difficult. God uh, permits us to make decisions that that, uh, result in great harm. To us and our families, we make poor business decisions. We, we go into deep debt from which we can't extricate ourselves. And we begin to do foolhardy things to our, to our families and make decisions that result in, in great uh, hurt and, and bitterness and harm to people around us. And uh, then in verse 20, Jeremiah says, The next result 
is that God simply lets us go, and we begin to degenerate and deteriorate further. The Lord says to Judah, Long ago I broke off your yoke. Some translations say you, but uh, the text actually reads, Long ago I broke off. I, the Lord, broke off your yoke and and tore off your bonds, because you said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you have sprawled out as a, as a prostitute. Uh, well, what God does when we want our freedom is, is give it to us. He lets us have it. That's the argument that uh, Paul presents in Romans 1 when he describes the... Uh, the downfall and the deterioration of, 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 uh, of society when men begin to turn their backs on God. Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth by their own righteousness. And then he explains what that, what that wrath entails. God simply takes his hands off of us and he lets us go. God's wrath today is not revealed in uh, immediate acts of judgment, lightning bolts out of the, out of the sky. It's, it's uh, simply the law of inevitable consequence. God lets us reap what we sow. He, he takes his hands off of us, and he, le- and he lets us go. Jeremiah says, Judah, you were just like an ox that didn't want to serve. It didn't want to submit to the yoke. So God said, all right, we'll just take the yoke off it. And we'll let you go. And the result, he says, is a slow and, and steady and inevitable deterioration of your life. He said, you became just like an old harlot who, and he uses very colorful, very vivid language, he just sprawled out for anyone under any, any old tree. And uh, then he, he uses a series of similes to describe their deterioration. He says, I, uh, in verse 21, I planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. The word that he uses uh, is descriptive of a type of red grape uh, that, was, uh, that was the result of selective breeding. It was a choice vine. God says, I, I planted you like that, but, but you turned into a corrupt wild vine. Judah reverted to her uh, to her uh, uh, old, to the wild stock. Although you wash yourselves with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. You you begin to to feel defiled, and there's there's nothing that you can do to take away that sense of defilement. When I was a kid, my mother used to always doctor my skins with uh, skinned up knees and things with Jensen Violet. You ever have anybody put Jensen Violet on you? There's absolutely no way to wash that stuff off. And I used to hate it when I'd get hurt because I knew that my mother would paint me with Jensen Violet and send me off to school, and for weeks I'd have purple knees or purple elbows, and, and there's just no way to, to wash it off. I felt uh, defiled. <laughs> and Jeremiah says, this, that's the problem. That's the problem. He, he, he says, you're just like a dirty old harlot. You're just like a wild vine. God just lets you go. And you begin to destroy your life, and this terrible sense of defilement sets in that you can't do anything about. You try your best to assuage the, that, that sense of guilt, but, uh, but there's no sense of pardon or forgiveness. How can you say, I'm not defiled, I have not run after the bail? See how you behaved 
in the valley. Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving. In her heat, who can restrain her? He says, you're like a wild donkey or a wild she-camel in heat. There's no restraining you. I, I, I'm sure that God has given us uh, some very vivid illustrations of, of life and things in the animal world. That's why we describe uh, unrestrained uh, passion as, as, as being bestial. Because we know that's the way beasts act. Uh, it's appropriate for a beast, that's the way they are, but it's not appropriate for us. We, we know better. We ought to be able to res- restrain our passions God says, when, when this process sets in, when God takes his hands off of us and lets us go, we, be, we revert to, uh, to a wild stock. We begin to act like animals, and we lose everything that's human and humane about, uh, about our humanity. He says, you're just like a, a sex-craved she-camel, crisscrossing her tracks, looking for a mate. But, uh, and as he goes on to say in... In the latter part of verse 24, any males that pursue her need not tire themselves at mating time. They will, they will find her. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. Interesting figure. He says, don't run until you, you run the sandals off of your feet and uh, you become uh, increasingly uh, thirsty. It's no use. You said it's no use. I love foreign gods, and I must go after them. When we first uh, turn our backs on the Lord, we do so because we want to. We choose to. But after a while, Jeremiah says, we're, we're locked in to this process of inevitable decline, and we are powerless to stop it. We do things not because we want to do them, because, but because we have to do them. Now, the, the final consequence uh, in verses 26 and following is that we become utterly impotent. We cannot change ourselves. As a thief is disgraced when he is caught, so the house of Israel is disgraced. They, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets. He says it's, it's just like a thief who breaks in and he's caught. You've been caught in the act of your rebellion. You've been caught with your hand in the cookie jar. There, there's no way that you can excuse your, your actions. It's true of the kings and officials and priests and prophets, and it's true of you, who say to the wood, you are my father, and to stone, you gave me birth. At this time, Israel was worship, worshiping both the Baals and the Asherim. The Asherim were, the, were considered to be the female uh, consorts of, of, of Baal. And they worshipped a wooden pole all, all through uh, this part of the country. Archaeologists find what looked like post holes dug down into the ground. The wood has long since rotted, but they find a different color of soil in the hole that preserves the shape of the hole, and they know that they erected wooden poles. And uh, these represented the Asherim. And uh, who, uh, Asherah was the goddess of sex. And, and they worshipped these uh, wooden poles, and they worshipped uh, stone pillars that were called matzibah that that represented Baal. Jeremiah says, how, how can you say that we've not defiled yourself when you've gone after these, uh, these, pagan, these pagan deities? They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble. 
For you have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah. The, the first result of, of rebellion is a sense of emptiness, and dullness, and boredom. The, the second is, a, is a, a, a feeling of defilement and deterioration as we begin to lose control and, and we begin to discover that we're no longer able to, to cope with our, with our sin. We like to be able to temporize with sin. We think we can control it. We can go so far and, and then we can cut back. But we become enslaved by sin, and we become impotent, and we're unable to turn back. We're dominated by our rebellion. We have to do the things that we're doing. We've totally lost control. And then we discover that the things for which we have sold our, our souls are impotent to help us. They don't save us. They don't give us any satisfaction. They, they lead to, to more and more emptiness. And it's when we come to that point, Jeremiah says, that we are willing to look for help. We save us. Now let me read the rest of the chapter from 29 through 37. Why do you bring charges against me? You have all rebelled against me. Our, our inclination at a time like this is to blame God for our troubles. He did it to me, we say. But Jeremiah says, no, no, don't, don't bring charges against God. You did it to yourself. God all along has tried to call you back. He says to Judah, in vain I, I disciplined your people. They did not respond to correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. God sent the prophets to Judah to call them to repentance. And one after another, they, uh, they slew them. And uh, they wouldn't listen to reproof and correction. They killed the word that God sent. Now of this generation, you of this generation, consider the word of the Lord. Have I been a desert to Israel or a land of great darkness? Why do my people say, we are going to roam? In other words, says, the Lord says, have I, uh, have I been a... Uh, has my relationship with you been ineffectual? Has it meant nothing to you? Have you derived no benefit, whatever, from knowing me and, and, and trusting me, counting on me? Has it been like living in a desert to be in relationship with me? Why then do you, do you want to set yourself free? Does a maiden forget her jewelry? Do you women forget your wedding band? Does a, a bride forget her wedding ornaments? Carolyn still has her uh, wedding dress in a big box that's uh, hidden away in a, in a wicker uh, basket in our family room. And uh, she uh, keeps it, I'm sure, for, for sentimental reasons, as all of you, you brides do. You can't, it's difficult to forget your wedding day. But uh, as Jeremiah says, apparently Israel, in contrast to, to brides, uh, ha she's forgotten. My people have forgotten me, days without number. How skilled you are at pursuing love. Even the worst of women can learn from your ways. You could teach professional prostitutes. Uh, that's how far you've gone. On your clothes men find the lifeblood of the innocent poor, though you did not catch them breaking in. 
Yet in spite of all of this, you say, I am innocent. He is not angry with me, but I will pass judgment on you because you say I have not sinned. Why do you go about so much changing your ways? You will be disappointed by Egypt as you were by Assyria. You will leave that place with your hands on your head. If you go to Assyria or to Egypt for help, you'll come back embarrassed and full of shame. They won't help you. For the Lord has rejected those you trust. You will not be helped by them. Now, the turning point in this, uh, in this message comes in verse 29 and following, when the Lord reminds Judah that she's going to find no help whatever from those that she has followed. The place to begin in coming back to the Lord is to admit that she's sinned. That's where we have to begin. It's good to go back and remember the past and the devotion of, uh, of our first love. We need to remember the consequences of our, of our sin. Uh, things will become increasingly more difficult. Our life will become more and more restricted. Circumstances will become more and more harsh. We'll find ourselves doing, doing things that uh, we thought we would, we would never do. And all of that is designed by God to teach us that he and he alone is the only source of help. And what we need to do is to call our sin what God calls it and repent. Jeremiah says the problem is that you've been defending your sin. You've been justifying it. You've been glossing over it. You've been saying, I, I, I haven't sinned. Jeremiah says, call it what God calls it. Repent of the sin and then return. It's just that simple. Uh, Helmut Thielicke describes, uh, describes our Lord in one of his studies on the parables as the waiting father. We may have left him, but he's never abandoned us. He's there waiting for us to come back. And when we're willing to look at ourselves as God sees us and to consider the word, consider what the word says about our sin, then he's waiting to receive us. Now, the place, the place for us to look is at the Word. It's the Word that identifies our sin for us. If we uh, look at society around us, uh, we, we, uh, we're, we're not going to know what God wants for us. God's will is not established by 51% of, of the population today. Nor can we say, let your conscience be your guide. That may be uh, Jiminy Cricket's philosophy of life, but that's not... Uh, that's not the way Scripture approaches uh, our actions. It's the Word that defines sin. And uh, usually what's happened to us is that we have made a choice somewhere along the line to, to, to direct our thoughts or to act contrary to the will of God. We've chosen to be unforgiving when Scripture calls us to be forgiving. We've chosen to be unfaithful to our, our wives, though God has called us to be faithful. Uh, we've chosen to permit our, our thoughts to, uh, to become impure when we know that, that God has called us to purity. And uh, there's no way to escape the consequences of those actions. If we go on uh, in rebellion, if, if we continue to be jealous when God uh, has instructed us otherwise, if we uh, continue to pander to the flesh and to permit it to have its fling, there's no help. Things go from bad to worse. 
but when we're willing to consider the word, as Jeremiah says, and uh, to repent, to change our mind about the direction that we're going, then God is there and waiting to receive us. Repentance has nothing whatever to do with emotion. We don't have to feel any way about our sin. We simply have to call it what God calls it and return. Uh, my, uh, I've used this illustration before, but it's, it's the best and the most helpful illustration that I, I know for this particular principle. My, uh, my wife has a number of antique chairs in our house, and uh, some of them have uh, split bottoms. And if you ever sit in one of those chairs, you're likely to get caught. It will pinch you. And uh, <clears throat> if, you were to have, if you were to sit in one of those chairs, uh, there are a number of ways you might approach that problem. Um, you might uh, think, well, it's all uh, in my mind. The pain is really not real. Um, as the old limerick puts it, uh, there was a faith healer from Deal who said, although pain is not real, when I sit on a pin and it punctures my skin, I dislike what I fancy I feel. Uh, we, we may think it's fanciful, but, but in our heart we know it's real. It hurts. And sin is like that. When we choose a course that deviates from the will of God, it hurts. The consequences follow. God won't let us get away with sin because he loves us too much and he knows the, the disastrous effects of our rebellion. And so he, he lets us have our way until we come to the end of ourselves and we realize that the problem is our sin. And uh, the only thing to do is to put the sin away. To make whatever hard choices you have to make. You may be living with someone right now who's not your mate and, and you know that that's not God's will for you. And you're suffering the, the pain of that relationship. Well, the only thing to do is to make the hard decision to break off that relationship and go home to your mate or to live by yourself, even though it means uh, perhaps uh, loneliness for you for a time. And that's the way that we deal with the pain that results from sin. The only way to avoid the pain of Carolyn's, care, uh, Carolyn's chairs is to get up and decide you're never going to sit in that chair again. Because every time you do, you suffer the consequences. Now that's what Jeremiah is saying. If you're here this morning and, and uh, you have felt the consequences of sin in, in your life, know that those consequences are redemptive. It's God's way of calling you back. And uh, the way back is to repent, to change your mind about the direction that you're going and come back and receive his grace and his forgiveness. As John puts it, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you say, well, don't I have to do something? Don't I have to wait for a while before I'm back in God's graces? Don't I have to somehow achieve some level of performance uh, on a, as, a, as a Christian before God will accept me? No. No, just turn around and go back, and he'll receive you. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Let's pray. Now, it may be that that um, your resistance to God's will is long-standing. It may go all the way back to childhood. There doesn't have to be a correspondingly long period of probation. God wants you to come back now 
and receive his forgiveness. All that we need to do is confess our sin. Call it what God calls it. Don't defend it. Don't try to protect it. Don't try to shield it from him because he knows. Confess it. And he's faithful and just to forgive us. It may be that you have you have never experienced his forgiveness. Uh, through all of your life, you've tried to make it on your own. Then you need to know that you need a Savior. None of the things for which you've lived will, will save you in any ultimate sense or give you the satisfaction you're looking for. The only person who can satisfy you is our Lord Jesus. And it would be good this morning to simply say, Lord, come into my heart. Thank you for dying for me. Come in and make me the person you want me to be. Father, we thank you for, for your grace. We thank you for your, uh, for your tough love, for your resistance to sin in our life, because you know what it does to us, and for the loving intent of your heart to draw us back into fellowship with you and give us the satisfaction and and, uh, and, and peace and joy that we long for. Thank you for making a way back. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.